letter from a Dharma group in the mail, and it had a, a little advertisement in it that said, Deepen your meditations. Improve concentration and absorption. Dissolve distractions and inner chatter. It's an ad for a hypnotherapist. (laughs) So just offering that, if that's the way you want to go, you you, you can go. (laughs) After the instructions this morning, just the fact when Sharon just mentioned we're going to pay attention to thought and everybody cracked up. It made me think maybe that would be something to talk about tonight. And that's what I'm going to direct uh, the talk at, working with awareness of thought. And I can't promise what the hypnotherapist promises, that you will dissolve all distractions and inner chatter. Nor is that the aim of the meditation. It's really when working with thought, It's learning to understand the nature of thought just as we bring our attention to understand the nature of every other experience. And within that wise understanding lies freedom. It's not about getting rid of thought, although a lot of people, all of us at some point, spend a large amount of our time and our thought thinking about how we can meditate in order to get rid of thought. It's not what it's about. So thought's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, we'd really be lost without it. It's an incredible, I mean, we need it. It creates so much. It's a wonderful tool when it's a tool. Unfortunately, a lot of the times it can feel as if we're a victim of our thoughts. This is from the Buddha. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, once understood, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. Thoughts are incredibly powerful. Yet if we could look at a thought just as a thought, what is it? Like right now, deliberately think a thought. It snowed last night. Poof, what is that? It's nothing. It's nothing. How is it that we get so caught up in such a struggle, so uh, imprisoned by our thoughts? How do they become so problematic? One way is that um, we confuse the thought itself for the reality of what we're thinking about. This is a little short poem from the Polish woman who won the Nobel Prize for Literature last year, I think. I'm sure I don't pronounce her name correctly. Wisława Simborska. The three oddest words. When I pronounce the word future... The first syllable already belongs to the past. When I pronounce the word silence, I destroy it. When I pronounce the word nothing, I make something no non-being can hold. The thought, the word, 
is just that. It's nothing else. It's not the actuality of what the thought or the word symbolizes. But this is a hard lesson. It's hard for us to really believe that because what we do is get so attached, identified to either the thought or the reaction we have to it or how it makes us feel or what it means that actually we don't even notice what a thought is itself. From Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. He says, when a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, yet a rainbow is not something we can actually clothe ourselves in or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way, through the conjunction of various conditions. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. Now, he's not speaking metaphorically here. This is like an actual. They have no tangible reality at all. There is therefore no logical reason why they should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are intrinsically empty, they will no longer have the power to deceive us. They're not bad. Once we recognize what a thought itself actually is, it doesn't have the power to deceive us, and then we can use it in a way that's helpful. But again, it's that we don't see, we don't know how to use our wise attention to recognize the transparent nature of a thought And we get so hooked in, as I said, from our reactions, from the sense of who I am and how this thought affects me or reflects me or is me. And I want to say just because a thought occurs frequently or arises together with a strong emotion does not make it more accurate. It does not make it more true, although that's often what we tend to think. Like it snowed last night. Now that happens to be in the realm of relative reality and accurate thought. There's no big necessarily thing connected with it. I am a stupid jerk because I keep thinking. Comes with a lot of baggage attached to it. But it's less true than the other. To look at the thought itself as distinct from the sense of self and story that grows around it. Some of you may have read Mark Epstein's book, Thought with it, Thoughts Without a Thinker. Just the title says it all. The thoughts are without a thinker. Now, use your thought of and think about that. If the thought doesn't have a thinker, <laughs> it's really not a problem. Actually, the thought's not the problem. The thinker's the problem. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's Here's mentioned in the afternoon questions one of Joseph Goldstein's more brilliant um, recommendations along this line of getting a sense of thoughts without a thinker, which is to imagine that every thought that arises that you're aware of comes from the person behind you. (laughs) 
It's brilliant, isn't it? If it's not your thought, it's really not problematic. <laughs> just some weird thought that came and went, just like a sound. This is a really good way to approach it because you see, it's the thinker that gives it all the oomph, not the thought. So we can begin to learn how to bring wise attention to the experience of thinking or thought itself and by itself, it's as the same as we bring attention to sensations, to emotions, to our breath, by just meeting it with bare attention, we begin to see through various layers of where we get hooked, which I can't pretend to talk about all of them tonight. I just want to talk about um, a couple. One is on the level, actually, it's a, the moment pre-thought of what we call basic perception. Now, perception in uh, Buddhist psychology is a very specific quality that arises in every moment of consciousness. So that when there's a sense contact, a moment when there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or mental activity, when there's a moment, so take something simple like hearing, there's something that makes a sound. There's an ear door, an ear that works. And there's consciousness. You know, if you were in a coma, we wouldn't say hearing was occurring. So when those three things come together, a sound, an ear that, door that works, and consciousness, there's a, that's called contact, a moment of hearing. Perception is said to arise in every moment that there's contact like that, and it is what we would call the quality of recognition or discernment. So it would be that, oh, it's a finger snap, for example. It might not even be a whole thought, but it's recognizing. So it's based really on memory, and it arises out of being aware of what's happening. But that perception, so when you hear sounds, often people have said, and we talk in the interviews about how is it opening to hearing, Someone will say, oh, you know, I can be with a bare experience, but of course right away my mind's going, well, that's a bird and that's a car going by. And yeah, that's perception. There's some way, if it's something we've heard or known before, we recognize it. Now, if you, I don't know if Sharon mentioned it this retreat, but the last retreat where she talked about her favorite word in Pali, papancha. Papancha is generally translated as proliferation, this proliferation of mind that just goes wild on something. Now, more technically, it's said that in a moment of perception, what often happens is, first, we often don't even recognize perceptions happening and we're on to the thoughts about it, our reactions or the next thing it reminds us of. This is what's called papancha. What one perceives, it's said in the texts, one thinks about. And then that what one thinks about, there's associations and memories and on and on and on. And it says these notions then assail and overwhelm a person. It's the tendency of the imagination to break loose and run riot. These are from the old commentaries. This is papancha. We have one perception, finger snap. And when we're not really attentive, the mind just does a riff on it, goes into this whole papancha, and you wake up who knows where. 
And that's just a normal tendency. Now, what confuses it even further, because if, if we're aware, we can bring our wise attention back to the original sense contact, the perception, finger snap, and nothing much happens. And that's a lot of what we're doing in the meditation practice. We're learning how to just be with the breath rather than the whole story of how uptight and type A I am because my breath is shallow. We're learning how to just walk, learning how to just feel a sensation in the knee rather than the whole story about being in the hospital. All of that is just coming back to the bare experience. But often we don't recognize this perception part. And what gets really interesting is that on the level of basic perception, a lot of the time our perception is not correct. And we don't know it. The Dalai Lama said once that all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. So it's not only that our, the imagination meets the perception, breaks loose and runs riot. First of all, it met a perception that wasn't even accurate and then goes wild on that. And it's no wonder we don't know what's happening. <laughs> he says all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. So mistaken perception is said to occur, and I'll give a couple examples. You can see it in ourselves. When in that moment of contact the consciousness is colored with one of our three friends that Sharon mentioned last night. Delusion, greed, or aversion, hatred. They can actually color the perception itself. And um, we don't realize it if we don't know it's present. Like uh, Sharon's example of the chili pepper last. Remember, we're biting down on the chili pepper. And if you go to the bare experience... It's stinging and hot. That's just how it is. But the perception of chili pepper could be colored with, you know, her, I want to get out of this country. I can't believe people eat this food. This is horrible. Or it can be colored with the perception this is an indication of something healthy. And, and then the papancha goes off in two different directions. When it's really just stinging and hot and everything else is extra. So that quality of mistaken perception can be more or less obvious. I remember one time I was in the hospital and I'd been there a few days and you know how they give you drugs and stuff and the mind can go into a kind of a weird state, definitely. And one morning, real early, like five o'clock or something, a nurse came. I mean, it was her job to wake me up and get me out of bed to weigh me. You know, like, that was really important how much I weighed, you know. <laughs> And, you know, my mind was actually, the consciousness was filled with paranoia, which I didn't realize. And I actually visually perceived her as demonic. You know, that's really how I saw her. It wasn't like I... <laughs> and the poor lady, because I reacted, you know, I reacted according to the perception. <laughs> you know, like I screamed, I don't remember what I said. But the, the next day, the same lady had to come at the same time, get me out of bed and weigh me again. But I wasn't, I didn't have that paranoia coloring my perception. And instead I saw what was probably more accurate, a nice looking lady who looked a little scared. You know? <laughs> I felt really bad. 
But that's an example of how it, you know, when the perception's that distorted, don't we really believe that's how it is? You know, if someone else had notion, I said, look, I know what I see. How often do we do that? I know what I see. Don't tell me otherwise. This is why it's so tricky, because that the bottom line of this practice is you absolutely can only open to wisdom through your own experience. You know, so and the bottom line has to come down to trusting your own experience. But you see the layers of subtlety that we have to keep looking, not take anything for granted, because superficially our own experience can be absolutely not exactly correct. And then we can take that mistaken perception way down the road. So greed and aversion, they can really color it. They're a little more noticeable. And Sharon spoke about delusion or this quality of confusion or just not knowing. And that is actually harder to recognize when it's present. But one of the things we do is then we don't actually know what the perception is, so we make something up based on past experience and go from there. A story, I know I've told this before, but it's a perfect story, so I'll tell it again. I was, on, um, I was teaching in Vancouver and staying in a friend's apartment by myself at night. It was a day uh, non-residential, so I'd go home to her apartment at night. And before I go to bed, I was reading a book um, about the Civil War in Beirut about, by a reporter who had lived there during that 10 years. It was really gripping and interesting. But that was the state of, you can imagine reading that just before you go to bed. That's the state of mind I was in, kind of paranoia, cars blowing up on the streets, kind of a guerrilla war going on in the city. And I just fell asleep in that state where you're not really deep. And I woke up to these loud booming sounds. And I lay there for a while, you know, how you slowly come into consciousness and you don't know where you are or what's going on. That's delusion right there. And then I just heard these booming, and the mind immediately goes, artillery firing. (laughs) Now, sometimes I teach in Southern California near a marine base where they do do artillery firing all night. And so it actually sounded and felt a little bit like that. So I was, okay, this is artillery firing. And part of my mind says, I don't think so, Carol. But I said, like, who knows? Who knows? Just because it's Vancouver, you never know when civil war could break out. <laughs> I got quite, and I jumped out of bed. I was, like, looking out the windows. I didn't see anything. I said, well, that's natural. There's nobody on the street because, you know. <laughs> turned on, I, really, I, I worked myself into a state, turned on the radio, trying to get news. I said, well, of course there's no news because the first place they ever go. <laughs> they want to lull everybody into thinking it's normal. <laughs> this went on for about 10 minutes. I thought, should I call up my friends? I thought, no, that's too stupid. You know? I did have some element of knowing, some little tiny thread of knowing. I think there's delusion happening here. And finally, I walked to the front window, and I didn't see anything, but it looks over uh, a field that had had um, a world exposition some years ago. And somehow seeing that, I just knew it was fireworks, although it was no holiday. or I don't know why there would have been, but I knew that. Okay, right. Clicked in. I went back to bed. But that's, that's what we do. We take some perception, fill in the blanks, and then make up a whole story based on it and act and react. And, you know, it's lucky if we find out within 10 minutes. 
what's going on. That's delusion. Not quite knowing and not really knowing that we don't know. And this is, in a way, what's underlying a lot of the confusion that leads us to get so wrapped up in identifying with thoughts or holding on to them or running away from them or using thoughts based on any perception to tell a whole story and then believing that story, even though it changes the next minute and we don't seem to notice that. So our practice is one of coming back to the bare experience and not taking anything for granted. It's not that you don't want to say, mm, I don't know, you know, digging it up and questioning and getting all um, unstable, but just to look fresh in every moment. Because when we don't look, we might be making assumptions based on misperceptions we don't even know are happening. There's a, a story I love from Oliver Sacks, you know, the neurologist, anthropologist, whatever, from his book, An Anthropologist on Mars, where he's, he's talking about, one of his stories is about a man who was basically blind from the time he was five until sometime in his 50s, and had pretty well adapted. You know, he worked as a, as a masseuse and had his life, and he was quite at ease at home in his world, and his perception of things was put together based on hearing and touch. And some point around when he was 50, they found they could do some kind of operation that would give him back his sight, which he hadn't seen since he was five. So they do the operation, everyone's standing around so excited, taking off the bandages, thinking you know he's going to be so happy to see. And he says, you know, when the bandages were moved, in the first moment, like he had no idea what he was seeing. Everything's just a blur, light, movement, all mixed up, meaningless. And he said out of one part of the blur came a voice that said, well. And then did he realize that this chaos of light and shadow must be a face, the face of his surgeon. But he didn't really see that. It's just that he knew voices come out of faces. That must be his face. And it really was interesting because uh, actually his life got a lot harder from that time because it never really, the perceptions that, that like one, like myself, having been born sighted, it seems like that's just how things are. The way the, the uh, mind puts together all this visual information, I don't question it. That seems like an accurate perception. But as uh, Oliver Sacks said, we can't really imagine his confusion because if you're born with the full complement of senses, we've learned how to correlate all of our senses to create a sighted world from the beginning. When we open our eyes each morning, it's upon a world we have spent a lifetime learning to see. We've learned to give meaning to visual objects, to have concepts that go... But when he opened his eyes after being blind for 45 years, there were no visual memories to support a perception. There was no world of experience and meaning awaiting him. He saw, but what he saw had no coherence. His brain could make no sense of the visual perceptions. And it was stressful. His life got chaotic. 
he, it, it was an enormous strain. You know, when he finally couldn't take it anymore, like he'd close his eyes and go back to not being able to see, and then he'd feel at ease and sure and could shave himself or eat or whatever he needed to do. And I, I love that because it's not just in that field, but in our whole experience of who we take ourselves to be as uh, an, an unchanging kind of distinctive, solid human being. That's what's going on all the time. We are not, if we're not really looking, you know, if we're taking it for granted, my body's solid, my sense of who I am is solid, and in fact, it's changing all the time. So I'm not saying this to make you believe that, but just to have us look. So when, when the Buddha said, um, he talked about mind moments, when we talk about how fast thought moves. And a mind moment is every moment that there's a new experience. Something that is translated to 17 trillion in the blink of an eye, it's fast. It's fast. And he says, no wonder things seem solid. Because it's changing so quickly, we don't notice the change. So just what we learn to do physically, emotionally, mentally, is to keep bringing our attention to the experience over and over, and then suddenly we'll perceive a discontinuity. Sometimes people notice this in a meditation physically, where they're sitting and, you know, we just assume it's my solid body, and suddenly there's just an experience of a sensation coming and going, coming and going, and in a, just in a vast space. It suddenly isn't within this solid body. And then that goes away again. And we think, well, that was kind of a neat, neat experience. But we don't really think, hmm, maybe that's just as valid as this like lump of solid flesh that I drag around with me most of the time. <laughs> maybe that's also true. So as Thich Nhat Hanh says, look deeply. We look deeply. We never stop at the surface appearance. You don't have to think about this, but this is what our mindfulness practice leads us into. So since I want to talk about this in in terms of thought, we see how when we continue to look deeply and consistently, see how thoughts are arising and passing. We're describing ourselves and our world to us almost constantly. And if we don't look, we don't even realize it, and we take those descriptions to be true and accurate and react from them, just like I took the war in Vancouver to be true and accurate. Nisargadatta Maharaj said once that, the world appears to you to be so overwhelmingly real because you think about it all the time. Cease thinking about it, and it will dissolve into thin mist. And we think, well, do I actually want it to dissolve into thin mist? Do I want to feel like thin mist? Maybe not. (laughs) And we start thinking about it. But all of these series of thoughts, unobserved, unrecognized, rather than just seeing the perception of, oh, that's a thought, they contribute to maintaining this false, Uh, perception or assumption of an unchanging solid self. 
And each of this contributes to the vast proliferation of becoming, becoming this, becoming that, over and over, that keeps us locked in this cycle of confusion, and then that keeps us reacting to thoughts. Because again, if it's back to, if the thought has nothing to do with you, it's really not a problem. But how many of the thoughts are describing us, our reactions, defining us, giving us a sense of meanness? And we don't maybe quite want that to dissolve in the thin mist. But it gets really alternately fascinating, and I find it sometimes hilarious, to really begin paying attention to these thoughts as they describe things rather than just believing them to notice how that comes from the simplest perception. So I'll give something, the basic kind of things that happen on a retreat, but you can expand it out to our life. You know, you're just sitting, minding your own business, feeling very mindful, and somebody goes rushing by, gets a cup of tea, slops it down, and you think, hmm, I'm pretty mindful here. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Now, what's actually happened there? Seeing, and then the perception based on memory of, don't look very mindful to me, and then some kind of pleasant feeling, another thought, I'm doing better than that, comparing, which is, you know, conceit. We don't notice those are just things arising. And from that, I'm pretty mindful here. Within 30 seconds, you know, we're meeting the Dalai Lama. We're opening spiritual centers. You know, we're like somehow every yogi here is bowing down to us and we remember everything great we ever did in our life and all the things that show what a success we are. Everything, our whole life is here in that moment, but selectively chosen, huh? (laughs) And then after that, however long that was, and you wake up and say, huh, Maybe they're slopping their tea, but they might know they're doing it. Whereas I, on the other hand, don't even know where I am. I think I'm in Dharamsala. (laughs) So actually, I'm not doing too well at all. And again, it's the same thing, you know? There's just a perception of a thought, again, seeing that person, another memory, and an unpleasant feeling, and then we drag in everything, all the times you've failed in your life, all the unfinished business that you've done, all the uh, unkind things you said, all the moments you weren't mindful, all the completely unfair judgments and comparisons you've made of other people, what a total worthless jerk you are. (laughs) And again, you know, your whole life, and again, selectively chosen. And in each of those, if if we're not seeing what's actually happening, it's just a series of thoughts coming together with different emotions and memories. If we're not seeing that, each of them feels really real, doesn't it? It's me. And if we don't look at it, it's the same me, although actually they're totally different me's, but it feels like the same me. And we're doing this all the time. Any little perception I remember walking in a retreat once and I looked out the window and it was snowing. Okay, seeing. That's all that's happening, seeing. From that seeing, I went into a whole thing about snow in my childhood and what it felt like and pleasant feelings and snow days off from school. and Just seeing whiteness. That was it. All the time we do that if we don't pay attention. 
There's a great line from Lily Tomlin where she says, uh, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. And then our tendency is to try and think our way out of this when really our practice, as the Dalai Lama says again, to have a correct perception, we need to have a direct encounter. In other words, wise attention, it simply is our challenge to notice, oh, this is a whole story, explanations, concepts, self-definitions, what's actually happening. Bring wise attention to the bare fact of experience. A thought, just like that thought, it snowed today. I'm the most worthless yogi here. I'm incredible. I'm brilliant. That person is hopeless. Whatever it is, it's just a thought. Tightness, unpleasantness, burning memory, bringing our attention to simply meet the experience as it is. It's radical. It's always available to us. And it's not that if we do that, you're going to get so into bare experience that you forget who you are or where you live, you know, or you can't find your Zafu in the hall anymore. (laughs) Somehow all of that still works. But it's just being able to come out of these stories and meet the bare experience. That's what we've been doing. That's what the whole mindfulness practice is. And so learning to do it with thoughts is exactly the same. It can seem a little trickier absolutely because thoughts are actually so ephemeral. Something we give so much power to is actually the most ephemeral of our experience. So it's, it's learning to bring a skill to it. That's all, to recognize thought as thought. And one is what I said before, that just because it comes with strong emotion, it's very helpful when there's a lot of repetitive thought. To the way I, this is like a kinesthetic way, but the way it feels to me is to recognize thinking and drop my attention under it to recognize and touch the emotion that's going along with it. And seeing that they feed each other, but it's not the same thing. Another way that it just that when you're looking at thought itself, bringing attention to thought itself, something that's very helpful is to rest in this quality that Sharon spoke of, that we've all spoken of, of spaciousness. So that it's not just glomming onto the thought, but seeing it in the vast space of awareness. The image Sharon talked about of Chogyam Trungpa's, of the bird flying through the sky, that's a perfect image. If we think of any thought that comes as the bird, but our awareness is the sky, the thought really isn't such a problem. We notice the thought, it kind of comes through and flies out. No matter what kind of bird it is, whether it's a beautiful um, parrot or a lovely nightingale or or a turkey vulture, It doesn't really matter. 
But instead of that, we don't notice the sky and we get, I've got to have this bird, I've got to have this bird, and we throw up nets and we try to hold on to it, and we can't, but we get completely bent out of shape. Or it's flying by and it's hideous. You think, oh my God, get rid of it, get out the air rifle, pop it away. And actually, that makes it hang around longer because it gets a little hurt, it flutters down, it goes around our head, you know. Where if we'd left it alone and just noticed it flying through the sky, it would just fly on out. But we get so involved in the reactions. If you can just, just have the inclination to notice the space around thoughts, the space between thoughts, it, it takes them out of being so deadly important, every thought. And in terms of sitting here on the cushion, just when you're sitting here on the cushion, it really doesn't matter what thought arises. Because you're going to sit here till the bell rings, you know. Even if it's just from shame, you're still going to do it. <laughs> and so, no matter how strong the thought is, just notice the space around it. Notice what it does. Let it go away. Space is actually a wonderful metaphor, not just for, oh, it makes it more relaxed, it makes it nice, and just kind of space out but that quality of spaciousness that allows us to bring a clear knowing to what is, is what actually, again, it's a metaphor, but that quality can allow our understanding to deepen, to see underneath that surface reality and and open quite profoundly to the truth. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He's talking about the space as a metaphor. He's talking about Buddha wisdom is very humbling, very humbling. He says, knowing the unconditioned, now the unconditioned is another word for nibbana, nirvana, or true nature, or whatever, freedom. Is knowing the unconditioned very interesting or fascinating? You might think, I'd like to know God or Dhamma. It's going to be incredibly fascinating to know something blissful, something ecstatic. And so you look in your meditation for that kind of experience. You think getting high is getting close. But the unconditioned is as interesting as the space in this room. Look at the space in this room. Is it interesting to look at? He says, "Um, not to me. The space in this room is just like the space in the other room. It's the things in this room that we get involved in. They're interesting or uninteresting, attractive, good, bad, ugly, whatever. But the space, there's not really much you can say about it. It has no quality except being spacious. And to be really spacious, one has to be patient. As there is nothing that one can grasp, one recognizes space only by not clinging to the objects in the room. When you let go, when you stop your absorptions, your judgments, your criticisms, your evaluations, your clinging of the people and the things in the room, you begin to experience the space of it. But that takes a lot of patience and a lot of humility. Humility in that we can just let go of how important our assessments and attitudes and reactions are. Get that sense of the space by not clinging or reacting to the objects in the room. We begin to recognize the space. 
And that space is what, that not clinging is what allows us to begin to recognize, you know, the great wisdom of the Buddha, the great wisdom that is really the potential of all of our hearts and minds, where we really begin to have a correct perception of who and what we really are, of what is true. And at this point, the question often comes up, well, what is it, just some kind of space, space out? That's what's true? Is this, is this it? Actually, this came up in a few groups. Kind of, is this it? You just let go of you know, reacting and being aversive and clinging, and you're left with a traffic jam and not being upset. You know, is that it? We sit here and thoughts come and go and we're at peace with them. Is that it? Yes and no. It's not it in the terms of that we're just left with a kind of a spaciousness, a seeing the emptiness of thoughts of our sense experience, that they come and go and have no intrinsic self intrinsic selfness. And so who cares? You know, it doesn't matter what happens. Sometimes when people hear or talk about emptiness, it can be misunderstood. And this, well, nothing really matters, so it doesn't matter what I do, you know, and there's kind of no, uh, no sense of responsibility. And it's not that at all. So the question becomes, and staying with thoughts, where do these thoughts begin to matter? Where does this, how does this deep understanding that we are not our thoughts, we are not our sense experiences, we are not this temporal coming and going. How does that manifest in our lives? Because it's not this nihilistic. It allows us to see through this sense of separateness, this sense of trying desperately to hold on to constantly changing experience for a sense of security, which breeds only fear. When we see through that, what we see is not this emptiness of nothingness, of non-caring, but the emptiness that leads us into our intrinsic wholeness, our absolute connectedness, which to me, there's two quotations that manifest it. One being John Muir saying, I find if I touch anything, it's connected to everything else in the universe. That's emptiness. When we're not clinging to anything, that's how we can experience our lives. That's how we can experience the world. And then this gives rise naturally to the balancing aspect of great wisdom, which is great compassion. It's the, the reflexive expression of our clear seeing, of wise understanding, that we begin to meet ourselves in the world with great compassion. In fact, wisdom and compassion are often spoken of as the two wings of the bird of the Buddha Dharma. A bird can't fly without both wings. Great wisdom can't really arise without great compassion, and vice versa. And so it's right at this point of wisdom and compassion that we see how we can begin to recognize and use thinking in a way that comes from truly understanding the nature of life and the nature of who we are and the nature of thought. You know, the 
quotation from Nisargadatta, it's really well known. That wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. It's really like that. So when we see that, we're nothing. I'm not all these thoughts about my past and my future and even my present. When I see that, then I see that I'm everything. And how does that manifest in our lives? This is where I think the Buddha, the way he laid out his teachings was so elegant, so brilliant, because when these thoughts, these factors of mind, like when you have a thought and it's coming together with greed or hatred or coming together with compassion, when these thoughts manifest as intention, the intention which Sharon mentioned last night, the application of mind, the energetic uh, direction of mind that gives rise to speech and action. These intentions often manifest as thought. So when a thought is coming as intention and we act on it, then it makes a difference. Then it matters. So if you're sitting here on the cushion, the most murderous, awful thoughts, they really are empty. When the thought manifest as intention a murderous thought becomes truly a murderous action and it matters you know so this is where the Buddha's teachings are so elegant because when he laid out his eightfold path of the way to live our lives to live a life of awakening the first step is understanding wise understanding, right understanding, how we understand ourselves in the world. And how we understand ourselves to be gives rise to the second step, which is translated as wise intention, wise thought. And the intentions and the thoughts give rise to the next steps, which are speech, action, and livelihood, how we live our lives in the world in relationship to ourselves and others. So this is where they come together. How we understand things to be gives rise to how we are motivated to speak and act in the world. And it's, it's, just, it's just so elegant to me. So you can see that here. If we're in a, in a moment where we're feeling unsafe or paranoid, very separate, or feeling that we need to protect ourselves and that other people are a threat, then our speech and actions will come, be motivated. The intention comes together with that state of mind and the intention arises from fear. And that will be how we speak and act. If in another moment we're touching that place of just seeing that in this moment things are just as they are. Someone said to me today, you know, it's just breathing, just touching the floor. In that moment, it's so clear that there's nothing in excess and nothing that needs to be gotten rid of and nothing is missing. In that moment, the sense of, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, wishlessness, the sense of touching everything. If I touch this, it touches everything in the universe. Then in that moment, the natural purification of our intentions happens, that out of that moment, an intention of desire or greed or hatred is not going to arise. It just isn't. 
You know, when you're in one of those states, you don't think, well, let me run and get the last muffin, you know. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Everything's perfect. I love the way Thich Nhat Hanh describes it. If I can find him. Oh, he says, the idea is that you do not put something in front of yourself and run after it because everything is already here in yourself. Don't try and think, how am I going to experience my whole life like that? Just a moment. Our whole life is only a moment, ever. It's only this moment. Each time that we are awake in a moment of recognizing that that sense of everything is here in myself, that if I touch anything, it's connected to everything, the natural result of that is that our thoughts and intentions purify to one of, of letting go, of generosity or non-greed, and love and compassion. And you can see this happening in little ways on retreats all the time. You know, Notice it in yourself. So often people will describe, you know, in the hall, somebody's coughing or sniffling or whatever, and all the things they go through, from feeling annoyed to thinking I should be compassionate, which is not the same as the natural arising of it. But it's still, that's still coming from some understanding that somehow compassion is a more natural response, but we're just not totally there yet, but still honor that. But not really being there. It takes really being honest, paying attention to our intentions, to wanting to kill, to turning the anger in on oneself, to just resting in that anger for a moment, and suddenly, as if effortlessly, there's actual compassion. It's like, oh, wow, that that must be really uncomfortable, having a cold. Oh, I really, may they be free from their suffering. And so often people say, where did that come from? You know, I didn't make it happen. That's what happens as our moments of wisdom increase as we touch our true nature and honor it more and more that our intentions of how we relate in little moments and in big moments purify. That's the P word. Sometimes people hate that, but it really happens. They transform. They change. (laughs) It gets easier for compassionate and loving and uh, non-greedy intentions to arise than for actions and speech based on neediness, fear, and cruelty. So learning to recognize when thought is manifesting as intention is a wonderful tool here and in our life. It comes into play whenever we're making decisions, when we're having to make choices. It gives us, if we can just notice, I'm about to say or do something which isn't always possible, but if we can just notice it, it gives us a moment of choice. And that's so wonderful because so often then, in that choice, we'll be able to choose consciously to come from our connectedness rather than from our fear. And sometimes it might seem a little bit forced, but that's okay. It's still better than coming from our fear or our greed. And other times we won't be able to make that choice, but we'll be able to see what's happening. You still meet that with kindness. And in that kindness, again, meeting the bare experience, 
It's like meeting that anger at the person in the hall. Ah, naturally again, some compassion may arise. Sometimes we work on it very consciously in our lives. It's not that we just sit back and wait. But once we understand, we've had moments where we've touched this truth, it can become a very deliberate intention to cultivate these purified intentions. A person who inspires me a lot with her compassionate action in the world, because that's what's interesting, that as our understanding deepens of emptiness, it doesn't lead to passivity, but actually these, the compassion and the, the metta and the non-greed lead to a much more active engagement in whatever form. But our sense of vibrant aliveness, of real connectedness with our experience and with others gets palpably stronger because we are connected. That's what lets us see the truth. And so someone who inspires me a lot with uh, the amount of work she does and, and how much it comes from caring for others is the woman who works with Thich Nhat Hanh's sister, Chan Kong, who has basically, I read her autobiography, spent her whole life, just since she was young, involved in social work, you know, in the middle of the Vietnam War, but really working in very difficult circumstances. Not being a perfect human being, I'm not saying that, we all have our stuff, but really with this dedication. And what inspired me is that, at least from what I could tell from her autobiography, she doesn't take it for granted. That even at this point, she's working very consciously to choose to act from intentions that grow from understanding, from compassion, rather than from anger. She's talking about, in the last few years, being involved in a campaign of writing letters to the government in Vietnam who had been arresting a lot of nuns and monks and artists. And uh, she said, every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry. And I knew I had to do walking meditation. Now, is that, is that one's normal? I'm angry. I better do walking meditation. <laughs> so that in itself is very interesting. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to regain my calm. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted in arresting such a lovely monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm and people found it easier to cooperate. To me, that kind of encompasses it all. The deep seeing of our interconnectedness, the emptiness of our thoughts of anger, of our reactions, the commitment to acting from the awareness of our interconnectedness and knowing we can't always access it, and that's okay but knowing that if we have the choice, we'll make it to come from our deepest understanding, knowing that it's a process, that it's our whole life. And it gets so that it's less and less something amazing and more and more the natural expression of understanding. And Shanti Davis says it in a way I love. Even though I have done things for the sake of others, No sense of amazement or conceit arises. 
It is just like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. And just one last thing is noticing how both consciously and naturally the intentions that can inspire us in our spiritual journey, which at times is boring as hell, and at other times incredibly arduous, and at other times so wonderful, really do begin to expand from the intention of my own happiness and peace to that word we often use of bodhicitta, that sense of a deep commitment to awaken so that I may serve all beings and help awaken all beings. And I've noticed in myself, I was talking to someone today who was noticing that herself, that in the beginning when one hears that and thinks, well, I'm practicing for the sake of all beings, it can actually sound quite egotistical. Like, who, who do I think I am practicing for all beings? But that's our misunderstanding. It really starts to change when, when the motivation begins to shift and move and take on this vastness beyond our limited sense of my own personal happiness, my own personal freedom, that truly there become moments when you're practicing for the awakening of all beings. It's not egotistical at all. It actually brings such a vastness of connectedness and compassion, a strength and a courage that lets you sit through things, look at things, hang with things, that if it was just for you, you say, I think I'll go get a pizza now. That's enough. I don't really need to wake up now. But when it's for really get it, that you can't awaken without all beings, and that a practice really is to affect all beings, it brings a much, such a depth, such a, a power to what we're doing that... It, again, it keeps bringing us back into a deeper and deeper understanding, and it lends a, it lends such a meaning to our lives. Not in the big sense, but that in even the most ordinary activities become activities of awakening. So I just want to end with a quotation from, from Geshe Robton, who's a Tibetan teacher, because I really like the way he says this. If I can find it. Here it is. He says for himself, all actions, even the most simple, are for the purpose of developing the awakening mind of wisdom and compassion and for the service of all beings. It's just a possibility. All actions, washing the dishes, changing the diaper, eating your soup, for the purpose of developing the awakening mind of wisdom and compassion and for the service of all beings. That's kind of like the ultimate purification of intention. But starting where we are, that's the uh, aspiration. Let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.